You're listening to ReachMD Radio, the channel for medical professionals. Welcome to Diabetes Discourse, sponsored by Novo Nordisk, a world leader in diabetes care. Here's your host, Dr. Stephen Edelman, founder and director of Taking Control of Your Diabetes, clinical professor of medicine, Division of Endocrinology and Metabolism, University of California, San Diego, and San Diego Veterans Administration Healthcare System. And I am Dr. Timothy Bailey, sitting in for Dr. Stephen Edelman. What is the impact of California's Sweet Success Program on the treatment of gestational diabetes? Joining us to discuss recommendations in the diagnosis and treatment of gestational diabetes is the chairman of the Department of Reproductive Medicine, Division of Perinatal Medicine at the University of California, San Diego, in San Diego, California, Dr. Thomas Moore. Dr. Moore, welcome to ReachMD. Glad to join. If you could just take a moment to define the difference between pregestational, gestational, mild diabetes and pregnancy. Well, it's a curious thing that uh, women who don't have diabetes during their non-pregnant lives, uh, many of many will develop as many as ten percent uh, will develop a condition that looks for all the world like diabetes during pregnancy, and this condition includes having high blood sugars. Um, and uh, and unfortunately, when the baby is in there and the mother has high blood sugars, there are a number of adverse effects, including helping the baby grow too fat. So even women who don't have diabetes when they're not pregnant may s- suddenly find themselves, uh, if we look for it carefully, uh, with this problem that may affect their baby, may lead to baby obesity. It may lead even to death of the baby inside the mother if it's not recognized and treated. This is really a much more sophisticated view towards this, that the impact of our therapy doesn't just impact the baby and their birth defects, but impacts generations to come. High diabetes control in pregnancy is the prototype, the first way that a lot of us understood that controlling diabetes was important. But if you could just uh, update some of our listeners on the more recent study by Dr. Landon in patients that had normal fasting glucoses. Well, um you know, we I think we recognize that women who had diabetes before pregnancy were at risk for having babies with birth defects and so forth. And so the importance of care just before and during pregnancy of good, good glucose control was very important for that child's health. But it's only recently that we became aware of how treatment of um, of gestational diabetes, which occurs only during pregnancy, and milder form of diabetes has, still has an impact on health. We know now that uh, babies exposed to to diabetes only during pregnancy um, have a much higher risk of developing infant, childhood, and adolescent obesity, and all the other things that can go along with that, including uh, diabetes themselves, hypertension, and what we call the metabolic syndrome. So that uh, uh, recognizing high glucose states during pregnancy and applying treatment, um, if, if you could apply an effective treatment, could reduce um, a lot of uh, disease and uh, adversity for children and adolescents later. So um, we've known for a while that it was better to treat gestational diabetes or diabetes occurring only in pregnancy um, for people with with you know, significantly high blood sugars, but it's only recently that we can, became aware of the, the more minor forms really could have an impact, and so. 
uh, Dr. Mark Landon and a group of 14 centers around the United States uh, decided to treat women whose fasting blood sugars at uh, approximately 26 to 28 weeks, two-thirds of the way through the pregnancy, uh, whose fasting blood sugars were normal, but their uh, response to a high glucose uh, drink uh, were abnormal. But this is considered a milder form. Now, the patients were put into uh, two groups, one uh, receiving treatment, which I'll describe in a second, and the other group that were managed with standard care and no attention was paid uh, to their uh, blood sugar control. So the intervention group that were receiving treatment, um, 93% of them never needed more than uh, dietary instruction, uh, adherence to diet, and checking their blood sugars uh, usually four to five times a day uh, before uh, when they get up in the morning and then after each meal. So that was the intervention side, and then we compared them to women who uh, just uh, tried to eat normal pregnancy type food and and uh, be as fit as they could. And then at the end of the pregnancy, the outcomes were compared. Now these are these are patients. Just to clarify, these are patients that previously we have not been treating. We have uh, some people have not been treating. The controversy was whether treatment was worthwhile or not, and many many uh, experts even uh, felt that patients with that level of uh, sort of minor glucose abnormalities it was not worth treating them. I see. That's 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 a very important point. Can, could you could you tell us exactly what what he found? Well, so they they uh, the the mothers. Um, uh, had different outcomes in that the women who were receiving dietary um, uh, intervention and checking their blood sugars had fewer C-sections. They had um, fewer labors that required C-sections. But most importantly is the results that, that we got from the babies is that the uh, likelihood of having a fat baby was cut almost in half. The likelihood of a baby being injured in the process of birth because of being too fat was, was cut in half. Um, and uh, a lot of the downstream effects in, in the newborn intensive care unit were reduced uh, in the babies um, who received treatment. And most importantly, when they measured the fat mass uh, in the treatment group compared to the normal pregnancy group, uh, there was a marked reduction in newborn fat mass. Amazingly, or to me anyway, uh, is that they also looked to see were there babies that didn't grow enough, that maybe the, the treatment had an effect on small babies, and there was an equal number of small babies uh, in the trial. So the, the, the upshot, I think, uh, for many of us is that, huh, we have a treat, even in mild cases of glucose abnormality, uh, you might consider treatment, and now we know that even something as simple as dietary intervention can make a big difference in how the baby starts extrauterine life. Well, if you're just joining us, you're listening to Diabetes Discourse on ReachMD, the channel for medical professionals. I am Dr. Timothy Bailey, and I am speaking with Dr. Thomas Moore. We're discussing the diagnosis and treatment of gestational diabetes. This is just an amazing piece of data that you've just given us. Could you tell us about how this is being incorporated into guidelines for healthcare providers? Well, so the real question is, who's at risk for having a fat baby? And as a matter of fact, as it happens, uh, women who are fat and even don't have diabetes uh, may have more fat babies. But really looking to see, uh, is there a way to um, start babies out on a, on a better footing with less fat? Um, some, some other studies have been done looking at what kind of blood sugars 
would be at the start of the, the last third of pregnancy would be indicative of developing excessive fat. And that extensive, that study, which was conducted in many, many countries around the world just recently, uh, called the hyperglycemic outcomes of pregnancy study or the HAPO study, um, found that uh, really any time a mother's fasting blood sugar when she gets up in the morning uh, is over about 90, the chances of the baby um, coming out fat is almost doubled. And uh, similar findings were found for after a glucose challenge after the first or second hour. So um, we really had to rethink uh, what would be uh, how to define women who could benefit and their babies could benefit from treatment. And so the the old-fashioned uh, system of uh, that we've used in the United States where we give a glucose challenge and, and we, we demand a rather high blood sugar values to before we would start treatment now have been significantly uh, reduced so that we have much lower thresholds for blood sugars that we're looking for when we do these glucose challenges at 24 to 28 weeks. Um, and so that we include a larger number of of uh, babies that that are at risk for getting fat inside their mothers. How should we be doing things differently in our practice? How should we screen? Well, first of all, I think we finally have a screening method that will be used um, over the globe. And uh, prior to now, um, really most European and uh, really Asian countries have used a 75-gram glucose challenge that requires fasting overnight and then a one-hour and two-hour test after that. Um, in the United States, for various reasons, we've used a, a two-stage test, so first a 50-gram challenge, and then if that was abnormal, we went to a three-hour three uh, test with 100 grams. Um, we're now all going to switch, um, I think. We, we're in the process of switching to uh, using the, the um, international standard. But it's not... It, the international standard that has been adopted um, inter, you know, by countries other than the United States um, have much lower uh, acceptable values on that two-hour 75-gram challenge than before because we recognize we need to include a lot of at-risk babies. And in fact, whereas we've usually said um, in most most typical uh, communities and ethnicities, maybe 5 to 6% of women will have gestational diabetes. Using this new test, uh, as many as 10 to 12% of women will be defined as, as at risk for growing a fat baby and who could benefit by treatment. Could you tell us what specific changes you're making in your clinic to implement this program? We're trying to identify women who... Um, uh, who either have diabetes at entry to pregnancy or have already blood sugars that are too high that will grow a fat baby. So we're ordering a hemoglobin A1C at the first uh, prenatal visit, a fasting blood sugar um, and to test to see if type 2 diabetes is there or if there is intermediate elevations in hemoglobin A1C. If we find the hemoglobin A1C uh, elevated uh, but not greater than 6.5, we will offer them dietary counseling immediately. And then everyone will begin getting the two-hour has already begun at our place, um, getting the two-hour 75-gram glucose challenge using the new lower values. We're already doing that, and we'll be taking that word out to the community through the Sweet Success program over the next six months. I would like to thank our guest, Chairman of the Department of Reproductive Medicine, Division of Perinatal Medicine at the University of California, San Diego, in San Diego, California, Dr. Thomas Moore. 
Dr. Moore, thank you so much for spending time with us on Diabetes Discourse. My pleasure. Thank you for listening to Diabetes Discourse, sponsored by Novo Nordisk, a world leader in diabetes care. To learn more about diabetes and the role of GLP-1, visit novomedlink.com forward slash DIA. For more details on the interviews and conversations in this week's show, or to download the segment, visit us at reachmd.com. In last week's class, we talked about how diabetes affects the whole person, and we left off with an important question. Are we looking at every part of diabetes? Uh, To help us answer this question, I've invited one of my colleagues as a guest speaker, Dr. Jackie Brennan, who has been practicing endocrinology for over 25 years. Hi, everyone. Thanks for having me. I'm happy to be here to discuss a key issue in diabetes, whether or not we're looking at the whole picture. As you know, sustained control of A1C is important, but we can't stop there. Weight, cardiovascular risk, and beta cell dysfunction are also part of the problem. Specifically, I'd like to talk about GLP-1 and how it impacts multiple systems affected by diabetes. Can anyone tell me more about it? Yes, Jamie, go ahead. GLP-1 is a natural hormone that helps regulate glucose metabolism, and the multiple actions of GLP-1 are critical to glucose control. Exactly. In a glucose-dependent manner, GLP-1 stimulates the beta cells in the pancreas to secrete insulin and inhibits the liver from releasing excessive glucose by reducing glucagon secretion from alpha cells. Anyone know what else it does? What about you, Sam? Yeah, doesn't it help control weight by slowing gastric emptying and inducing a feeling of satiety? Yes, and GLP-1 may also play a role in improving beta cell function, a key to slowing diabetes progression. But why is this so important? It's because at diagnosis, type 2 diabetes patients have already lost 50% of beta cell function. Well, isn't impaired GLP-1 physiology also part of the problem in diabetes? Yes, that's a great point. People with type 2 diabetes may have impaired GLP-1 activity and or impaired beta cell response to GLP-1. This could contribute to problems that develop over time. That's why the multiple actions of GLP-1 throughout the body are critical. GLP-1 regulates blood sugar in a glucose-dependent manner, may help control weight, and may improve beta cell function. Novo Nordisk is a world leader in diabetes care and is dedicated to ongoing research. To learn more about the latest treatment available from Novo Nordisk, please visit glp1analog.com.